Section 34 of Uther and Egrain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cassian Hayes. Uther and Egrain by Warwick Deeping. Book 4, Chapter 1. The castle of Tintagel stood out above the sea on a headland that rose bluffly above the white foam that girdled it. The waves swinging in from the west seemed to lift ever a hoarse chant about the place with their perpetual grumbling against the cliff. Color shifted upon the bosom of the sea. Blue, green, and gray it would sweep into the west. Nettled gold with the sun, banded with foam, or spread with purple beneath the drifting shadow of a cloud. Hills rose in the east. Between these crags and the sea rolled a wilderness cloven by green valleys and a casual stream. Tintagel seemed to crown a region grand and calamitous as the sea itself. The sun was going down over the waters, watched by a flaxen-haired lad squatting on the wall of an outstanding turret. His legs dangled over the battlements, and his heels smote against the weathered stone. There was a premature look of age upon his face, a certain wistful wisdom, as though he had completed his novitiate early in the world. His blue eyes, large and sensitive as a dog's, stared away over the golden edge of the sea. This was Jehan the Bastard, a pathetic shred of humanity, thin and motherless, blessed with nothing save a dreamy nature that stood him in poor stead in such a hold as Tintagel. Like any mongrel owned of none, he was given over largely to the cuffs and curses of the community. Men called him a fool and treated him accordingly. He was a scullion, horse-boy, pot-bearer by turns. The men of the garrison could make nothing of a lad who wept at a word, never showed fight, but crept away to mope and snivel in a corner. He had earned epithets enough, but little else, and the rude Philistines of the place, beings of beer and bone, knew little of those finer instincts with which nature chooses on occasion to endow a soul. At times, Jehan would creep away up this turret stair to live and breathe for a season with no friend save the ever-complaining sea. He would perch himself on the battlements with the salt wind blowing through his hair, the rocks beneath him boiling foam from the waves that swept in from the west. The perch was perilous enough, but the lad had no fear of the windy height or of the waves breaking against the pediment of the cliff. To him, man alone was terrible. There appeared to be a confident understanding between nature and himself, a sense of good fellowship with his surroundings, such as the chamois may feel for its mountain pinnacle, and the bird for the tree that bears its nest. Jehan's thin face was turned often towards the central tower of the castle, a square campanile that stood in the center of the main court, forming a species of citadel or keep. High up in the wall there was a window, a streak of gloom that showed nothing of the room within. Over Jehan this window possessed a peculiar influence. It was the casement royal of romance. Day by day, Ever since Gorlois had come south again, the lad had watched for the white oval of a face that would look out momentarily from the shadow. Sometimes he saw a woman's hand, a golden head glimmering in the sun. 
Jehan had seen Gorloise's wife brought a second time into Tintagel. Her staring grief had taken strange hold upon his heart. Ever since, with the kindled chivalry of a boy, he had done great deeds in his dreams, handled a sword, taken strong men by the throat. The imagined event had fired the soul in him and made him the disciple of these sad and wistful eyes. A bell smote in the court below. Its iron clapper dinned the fancies out of Jehan's head, calling him to the menial realities of life. It was the supper hour, and the men of the guard would be strenuously inclined over the steaming pot, the wine jar, and the twisting spit. Jehan left his turret with the pathetic cynicism of an autumn twilight. Little drudge that he was, he yet had the inward independence to despise the folk who fed like swine and terrorized him with pure, blatant barbarism. He could listen to their blasphemy, their ribald songs, and breathe the moral garlic of their tongues with a disrelish that never wavered. He had none of the innate impudence of youth. Had he been of coarser fiber, the men would soon have made a lewd and insolent imp of him, but he was spared such a fate by a certain spiritual instinct that recoiled from the vaporing brutality of it all. There seemed more ribaldry abroad in the guardroom that night than was customary, even in so pious a place. The company, much like a pack of hounds, hunted jest after jest from cover and gave tongue royally with a zest that would have been admirable in any other cause. Lamps swirled ill-smelling smoke about the room. There was a lavish scattering of armor among the benches, and the floor was dirtier than the floor of any tavern. Jehan's ears tingled as he went among the men, climbing over sprawling legs, edging between stools and benches. The air reeked of mead, and the miasma of loose talk rising from twenty throats. A woman's name was tossed from tongue to tongue, bandied about with a familiar insolence that made him blush for her like a brother. His heart burnt with the bestial impudence, the sweat, the foul breath of it all. Yet, before these red-bearded faces, those vociferous mouths, he was a coward, hating himself for his fear, hating the men for the sheer tyranny of the flesh that awed him. To hear in this den such things spoken of a woman, and of such a woman, that she was true, his quick instinct could aver in the very maw of the world. There was the silver calm of the full moon in her face, and she had for him the steadfastness, the incomprehensible eloquence of the stars. Were these men blind that the staring grief the divine scorn that had smitten him from the first with a vague awe were invisible to them? Their coarse cynicism was brutally incomprehensible to Jehan. Having a soul, he could not see with the eyes of the sot or the adulterer, nor had he learnt to mistrust the intelligence of his own heart. As he labored from man to man with his jug of mead to keep the brown horns brimming, he thought of the golden head that had glimmered in the crisscross light of the ewes in the castle garden, the woman had been faithless, to put popular report mildly, and Gorlois was a hard man. He would see her dead before he pitied her. Jehan was so far gone in dreams for the moment that he tripped over an outstretched pair of legs and shattered his stone jar on the floor. A god curse you! And lavish largesse in the way of kicks recompensed the dreamer for this contempt of office. Jehan, bruised, spattered with mead, crawled away under the benches and took refuge in a dark corner where he could recover his wits behind the piled pikes of the gentlemen who cursed him. 
Such incidents were the trivialities of a menial existence. Jehan wiped his face on his sleeve, choked down his sobs with a dirty fist, and devoutly hoped to be forgotten. Meanwhile, a broad figure had stood framed in the doorway and drawn the attention of the company from the boy squirming like an eel along the floor. Jehan, peeping around the pile of pikes, saw a woman in a scarlet gown standing under a lamp that flared on the threshold. The woman was of unusual girth and height. Her black hair streamed about her sensual red face like clouds about a winter sun. Her neck was like the neck of a bull, and her bare arms would have shamed the arms of a smith. Jehan watched her as he would have watched a natural enemy, a thing whose destiny was to be brutish and to destroy. Men called her Malmain, the evil-handed. She was a cub of the forest, strong as a bear, cruel as any wolf. Years ago, she had been caught as a child in the woods, tracked down to a rocky hole, a whelp that crawled and bit and knew nothing of the speech of men. She had been brought to Tintagel and bred in the place, the pet of the soldiery, who had taught her the use of arms and the smack of wine. In ten years, she had grown to her full strength, a creature wise in all the uncomely things of life, coarse, bold, and violent. Last of all, Gorlois, with a genius for vengeance, had given her charge of Egrain, his wife. The woman was good to look upon in a large, florid fashion. She came in and sat herself down on a stool at the end of one long wooden table and stared round with her hard brown eyes. One man passed her a cup, another the wine jar. She tossed the former aside with an air of scorn and buried her face in the mouth of the jar. When she had taken her pull, she spat on the floor with a certain quaint deliberation and wiped her mouth on the back of her bare arm. A wicked innuendo came from a man grinning at her elbow. Malmain laughed and pulled at her lip. Her presence conferred no leavening influence upon the place, and her sex made no claim for decorum. She was more than capable of caring for herself in the company of these gentlemen of the guard, for she could take her laugh and liquor with the best of them, and claim a solid respect for a fist that could smite like a mace. She flustered up a sigh that ended in a hiccough. I am tired, she said, stretching her arms and showing the breadth and depth of her great chest. Go to bed, fragile one, and shake the castle. Little chance of that. Who says I snore? Gildas the trumpeter? Curse him. How should he know? The man questioned, grinned, and shrugged his shoulders. I meddle no further, he said. How is the Lord's wife? Malmain licked her lips and reached for the pot. She tilted it with such gusto that the liquor overflowed and ran down her chin. After more cat's pawing and a snivel, she waxed communicative with a matter-of-fact coarseness, and like an old hound soon had the rest tonguing in her track. Gorloy will break her yet, quoth one. I'll bury her. A fit fellow, too, and a gentleman. Why can't she knuckle to him and play the lady? The woman's worth three of that chit with the white face. A fine brat ought to come of it. Malmain showed her strong white teeth. Somehow, she said, there's no more cross-grained creature than a woman with a grievance, especially when she has been balked of her man. Let a woman speak for a woman, though I break the spirit of her with a whip. <laughs> there's less fighting now. By Jesus, 
You should see her bones staring through her skin. Jehan had listened to their talk behind the pile of pikes in the corner. The blatant cynicism of it all chilled him like a March wind. He thought of the sad, strong face, the patient scorn, the youth, the prophetic may of her of whom they spoke. There was a certain terrible realism here that tore the tender bosom of his dreams. The room stifled him with its smoke and stew. Crawling round by the wall on all fours, he gained the door and crept out unnoticed into the dark. In the sky above, the stars were shining. The world seemed big with peace, and the face of the heavens shone mild and clear as the face of God. Jehan stood under the shadow of the wall and looked at the window high up in the tower. It was black and lusterless, and only the dust of the stars shone up in the vast canopy of gloom. Jehan shook his fist at the dark pile of stone. Then he went up to the roof of the little turret and watched the sea foaming dimly on the rocks below. End of Book 4, Chapter 1 Recording by Cassian Hayes, Philadelphia